Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Cheer, Bart. Come again? Dobre vecher. I can't. I, I have no. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't speak any Ukrainian. No sprechenzi Ukraine? No. Me neither. I looked it up on Google Translate. <laughs> I just know if somebody's name ends in an enko, they're Ukrainian. Well, today we're, we're talking about some enkos. <laughs> Actually, this is a follow-up episode to our Ukrainian film episode, which is really kind of a Dovjenko studio episode that we did uh, not too long ago, where um, we focused on films that came out in what was Soviet Russia, but was, you know, Ukraine in the 60s. And we left off the two most popular names from that list in hopes that we would do an episode specifically about them because it felt necessary and here we are. We're doing it. It's Sergei Parajanov and Yuri Ildenko. Yeah, it seemed really weird not covering Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors in that Ukraine episode. But here we are to correct that mistake, which wasn't a mistake. It was on purpose. <laughs> you you just love Parajanov, so you wanted a, a whole episode around him. Well, one of my introductions to 60s Soviet film was both Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors and The Color of Pomegranates, which I think is the two films that if you say mid-century Soviet Ukrainian magical realism, <laughs> those are the two movies that you're going to come up with, even though one is Armenian. Color of Pomegranates is, yeah, about an Armenian and Parajanov was a Georgian, but, uh, you know, he, it's all it's all gotten jumbled up into kind of the same... The same thing, and we'll explain why. His parents were Armenian, and he grew up in Georgia. Is that right? Well, you've got all the biographical stuff. Are you, are you going to get into that now? Here it is. Okay. Sergei Parajanov, he was born in Tbilisi, Georgia. He found his way to the Gerasimov Institute of Cinematography in Moscow, and he was mentored by uh, Alexander Dovchenko and uh, Igor Savchenko. He made movies like pretty early on. He was making movies by the 50s, I believe. And part of why he left Georgia was because he was uh, jailed in the late 40s for homosexuality, which is something that he got accused of continuously. Um, though it's interesting because um, it's basically that he, he was, it seems like he was bisexual, though there are people that claim that a lot of these charges were just sort of used in order to jail the guy because he just was too artsy for the Soviets, <laughs> as it goes. Uh, interestingly, he actually married this Tatar girl in the 50s, and then she got murdered by her own family for converting to Orthodox uh, Catholicism. 
And so he got out of Georgia and ended up in Moscow. He was shooting documentaries. He was uh, shooting features. His early features, which we're going to talk about, of, of the 60s. Like, he had a bunch of movies out in the 50s. They're pretty much standard for Dovchenko of what we saw and talked about in the previous episode. And it wasn't actually until uh, 1962 when he saw Ivan's Childhood, the Tarkovsky movie, which we've also covered, though I'm trying to remember what episode that was in. It was our 1962 Kiss, Mary Kill, I think. Oh, maybe, yeah, because that's one of my favorites as well. And that was something that it was one of those movies. And Tarkovsky and... and Parajanov gets spoken about pretty often in the same breath just because they were contemporaries, but their movies are really nothing alike other than the fact that they're like very thoughtful and maybe use long silences. <laughs> well, they were buddies, right? They were kind of inspired and by each other. They were definitely, they were friendly. They exchanged um, letters, uh, especially when Parajanov was in, was in jail. But yeah, he was very inspired by Ivan's childhood in order to kind of pursue that kind of dreamy aesthetic and you know this idea of drawing on folklore that that kind of more culture specific filmmaking which was of course the opposite of what the soviets wanted they wanted you know good communist unity and and they wanted soviet culture they didn't want to see they, they you know there was no georgia there was no ukraine there was only the ussr and yeah i mean We'll get into it. We'll get into his life. He basically, you know, by the beginning of the decade, he was a good Soviet filmmaker. And by the end of the decade, he was pretty much enemy number one as far as artsy filmmakers go. <laughs> and that that's a it's an interesting arc on its own. And then I wanted to pair him up with Yuri Ilyenko, who was his uh, initially was his cameraman. And Yuri was born in the Ukraine. He grew up in Russia. He, uh, you know, Soviet Russia. He also joined Dovchenko Film Studios uh, in the early 60s, a little bit later than Parajanov. But he was uh, invited to be the, the cinematographer for Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, which was, you know, like the film. And we're going to definitely talk about that. I would say that his style of cinematography is like very, very clear. He he has this really sort of dreamlike, constantly moving handheld camera style, a lot of spinning, sweeping movement across the, the screen. Uh, and, and that becomes even clearer when we get into the things that he directed himself. And when, as far as, as Ilyanko goes, as far as like, you know, uh, he also got in trouble with the government for um, the choice of film that he wanted to make, which got increasingly more Ukraine culturally specific. And he was never imprisoned uh, for his films, but he was he was continually harassed by uh, Soviet censors and, and uh, you know, officials. Um, by the 1970s, he made this movie that I really love, and I wish we could talk about it, um, called White Bird Marked with Black, and uh, it was one of these movies that, it, like, you know, did so well internationally, won, like, the grand prize at the Moscow International Film Festival and got banned immediately and was, like, called, like, the most harmful film for young people, like, you know, bad influence and, uh, you know, too nationalistic. Uh, so, you know, he was also just, like, you know, cut his, his career, an illustrious career cut short, 
which then unfortunately also kind of, um, he, he continued to make films, uh, but you know, he had a hard time getting them made is, is what it comes down to. All of this kind of soured him unsurprisingly towards communism, but then unfortunately kind of, he, he got into one of those like Ukrainian nationalist uh, bents that then turns quite fascist. <laughs> he was into by the end of his life, he started actually running for political office with the, the right wing uh, Svoboda group. Unfor- it's all unfortunate. Google it if you want to uh, maybe hate him a little bit, but uh, it, it makes sense a little, unfortunately, <laughs> if you kind of look at his uh, life. But we're not going to talk about any of that because we're going to talk about the 60s. And this is when both of these guys were at the peak of their uh, careers. Except and- it's kind of funny that we're talking about all these movies as 60s movies when the majority of them weren't really seen by anybody until Glasnost era, like mid 80s or later. Like that's when all of these movies were were suddenly OK to be shown in the Soviet Union. And and uh, that's when when other Europeans were seeing them too. It's, it's just funny to, to, to realize that, uh, that in a sense, these are, these are eighties movies because that's, that's when, especially the, the later ones we're going to talk about, that's when they were seen. Right. Everything from shadows of forgotten ancestors, um, onward was pretty, was pretty much banned as you said, until the eighties or even, even later. I mean, as far as just getting access to these things and in decent quality, with decent translations, uh, it, it's hard. Yeah. But, uh, you know, luckily there were people like Martin Scorsese championing Parajanov, so. Oh, we had a whole bunch of people. I mean, from Scorsese to, to Antonioni, I mean, like there was, I guess that's only Italians. I didn't get very far. But, um, you know, there was a ton of, of contemporary filmmakers who once Parajanov, especially in the 70s, was jailed for like the second or third time continuously on these sort of trumped up charges of either like bisexuality or he actually got he got put away for Ukrainian nationalism, which is funny because he's not Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was just like it, it, that was continuous. And, and uh, while he was in jail, actually, he... Um, made a bunch of uh, really cool artwork. Looks quite a bit like Color of Pomegranates. And uh, there's actually a, a whole museum dedicated to him in Armenia somewhere where a lot of his artwork is on display. Hmm. Well, I was familiar with him and had seen a couple of his movies uh, before. Yuri Ilyenko was completely new to me and you, you've been talking him up for a bit. So I was excited to to see some of his stuff and they uh these guys pair together really well like this is there's a definite arc here to this episode um but we should we should get right into it well the first movie is ukrainian rhapsody This is directed by Parajanov. Like, this is his very typical uh, Dovzenko studio style movie. Though, I mean, it's interesting to watch this. I, you know, having seen his later films to, to watch these earlier ones, which I definitely 
haven't seen this was my first time seeing it and it was fun because you can you can see a very clear evolution the good button-up conformist Parajanov versus the uh, the more wild artistic Parajanov but um, the plot here is this woman named Oksana who is a singer and she is an opera singer rather and she's competing in a singing contest it looks like it's in Paris or something and everyone is super charmed by her, but all she can think about is, you know, the past. And we flash back to her childhood in Ukraine, which is full of sunflowers and farms and women transporting hay on log rafts. <laughs> everything, uh, everything you think about when you think of Ukraine. It's very enchanted, Desna. Yes, exactly. Fields of corn and wheat. Uh, the breadbasket, as it were. Um, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, it's beautiful and, and lyrical. And there is a boy named Anton that she has a flirtation with. And another boy named Vadim who has a thing for her. And Vadim is, like, more musical. He's another singer. And he seems like the natural match for Oksana. But she really is in love with Anton. And it doesn't matter either way because both of these guys get hauled off to war and Anton goes missing in action and Oksana becomes convinced that he's dead. And so she continues on with her studies as an opera singer, but she is increasingly having trouble focusing on her opera singing because she feels like it's just not useful in a time of war. There's this one uh, line where, you know, she's trying to practice in you know, with an, this older woman who was playing the piano, her singing coach, and uh, Oksana sort of drapes herself over the piano and says, all of Ukraine is on fire, and here we are singing away. It's so pointless. So um, she ends up giving up her opera singing to become a nurse, even though, again, I, I maybe am underselling how beautiful and perfect her opera singing is in this movie. Well, we already <laughs> in know. In this movie world. We already know at the beginning of the film that she's like a she's the greatest opera singer in Europe. She wins this big contest and the, everything we're hearing is this flashback when she's on the train back to, back to her little Ukrainian village. So even if uh, your ears don't detect that she's a great singer, the uh, narration informs you that she is. Right. Like, was it just me? I thought she was fine. (laughs) (laughs) She had a really good range, but um, I don't know. She wasn't she wasn't my greatest European opera singer, but whatever. Uh, yeah, no, she's, you know, like this is a big sacrifice and everyone's really upset with her for giving this up and becoming a nurse. But she, you know, wants to be a nurse because of all the guilt that she feels about Anton. She wants to be a good communist and all that. And so um, and, and Vadim is there, you know, and he sort of keeps tabs on her. And he tries to convince her otherwise, but she just refuses. And then we sort of find out separately that actually Anton is alive and he has been kept as a prisoner of war. And I think he's initially he's caught by the Germans, but then he, he gets liberated by the American army. And then in a sort of in a funny scene, he gets held captive by the American army for basically what is an indefinite amount of time. Because we all know you can't trust Americans, basically. Like it's some it's some like bureaucracy weirdness, like where they they just like refuse to let him go, uh, even though they say we're liberating you. Yeah, and we find out it's actually kind of cool. We find out that Anton was taken captive during the war, and it's a scene that has no dialogue, and it's all music, and it's very like dreamlike. 
it's like a mixture of his memories and thoughts and hopes and dreams. And he, you know, he sees Oksana in this like cave and she has a flower crown and uh, it's very, very operatic. And, uh, you know, we end in our Ukrainian village and Vadim is there. He's teaching little children how to sing. And, you know, you think maybe she's going to finally settle down with Vadim, but then Anton shows up and hooray and, and movie. Uh, it's, it's actually, I mean, I, I'm kind of ragging on it for being hokey, but at the same time, I thought it was really beautiful, at least. Like, this is, this is truly, like, it, it feels like you're watching an opera on screen, even though it is not an actual opera. Yeah, it's got that overwrought melodramatic romance to it that an opera does. But I, I found it really easy to watch. It was, you know, definitely is stuck in that, Soviet realism thing where everything is for the good of uh of the state and uh it kind of felt like a Visconti movie. Oh yeah, a little bit. It's a little it's it's more heightened, I guess, even than Visconti. Uh more movie magic melodrama sort of thing. But yeah, I thought it was interestingly structured. I thought she comes right out and says, I wish I could share my victory with Anton, but he's dead. So when we're watching these flashbacks to Anton and what happened to him during the war, it's not even told necessarily a, a chronological way. So we're never really sure, oh, maybe this is where he dies. Oh, maybe this is where he dies. I mean, we've, we've already spoiled it. So, uh, yeah, he doesn't die. But um, I think that sort of keeps you going, like trying to figure out, oh, where is this? When is this happening? Is he actually going to get away? And And you think... I mean, I thought anyway that uh, that it was all all this flashback was leading up to his death. I didn't know that for sure that he was going to come back to to Oksana. So that's that kept me going. And there are there like that dream sequence you mentioned. And there's there's some opera that's actually see staged opera that's staged in a really dreamlike way. And there's it's all very or not all very painterly, but there's a lot of painterly stuff like when we you see the the opera competition there the the singers are all got these gauzy drapes in front of them and you know he's he's already sort of turning three dimensions into two dimensional you know painterly images and there there's certain clues to where Parajanov was headed with this film but it feels very very different than the movies that he's famous for i mean there is some interesting camera work in this like i i like whenever the camera is moving, but the characters aren't, which feels kind of like, I don't know how to describe it, but it has, it, it, it feels like you're looking at this. It's a bit like a moving tableau feeling, which is something that Parajanov ends up leaning hard into, though he ends up with a stationary camera most of the time for those. But there is this kind of jewelry box-ness to the whole thing. You know, like you're, you're sort of like turning a, like a miniature... <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Save me. It's like it's like, like you're, you're this sort of jeweled miniature egg in your hand. You know, like you're you're like in, inspecting the details of a scene without the scene ever changing. Yeah, or like moving around a dollhouse to see it from different angles, maybe. Yeah, and it, and it's it's I don't know. It's a cool it's a cool effect. It, you know, it's a theme that he comes back to time and time again, and and it's just it's cool to see it in this sort of early early version of it. Uh, and yes, yeah, so I don't know. It was fun. I, I like this movie. I didn't think it was really like I don't. It's not something I would totally revisit. Though I have to say that it was the the use of color 
and costumes and uh, that whole dream sequence. If this ever got restored, I would definitely make the effort to see it again. Yeah. Although I do find that that Soviet color film stock. Oh, it's kind of depressing. It's always kind of yellowed out. And I don't even know if it can be like if it's restored to what it looked like in the theater. I'm not sure if it's still if the colors are will be would be all that appealing. You know what I'm talking about? That sort of yeah, I mean yellowed even, out uh, Moss film sort of look. <laughs> <laughs> I know it was it was like the you know the, that's what we make Mexico look like in every film, right? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, well, I don't know, like the restorations of the other films that we talk about later on look amazing. I think. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, nothing, nothing too special, and I think we're kind of spoiled knowing where Parjanov was headed after this. Um, so kind of made this seem a little underwhelming, but there, it's a perfectly good, fine movie. Um, as is the next film that he worked on called Flower on the Stone. It came out in, in 1962, and it was originally being directed by Anatoly Slezarenko, but there was an accident on set, and the, the second lead actress in it ended up dying of uh, severe burns. Uh, yeah, he had some scene where she had to run into a burning house, and he insisted, or or that she was, I because I was looking this up and I was finding conflicting stories, which were also Google translated half the time. So take this with a grain of salt. But it was either that she was had to sit in a burning house so she could be rescued, or that she had to run into a burning house to rescue a banner or something. And he kept insisting on multiple, like doing it again, because he didn't like the the first take. And by the third take, the whole shack collapsed on her and her she got burned over like something, some 90 something percent of her body and then later died at the hospital. And then they found out she was three months pregnant. And yeah, she ended up getting arrested. He got re- arrested for her death on set. Yeah. So in a Burdichenko, who who is the one who died in this film, has a you know, she's got a major role, but it does seem like. Something is missing there, but they, they, you know, Perjanov manages to get her full story in, it seems. It's really hard to tell what Perjanov might have been responsible for for in this movie when he took over, but... uh... We should compare notes after you (laughs) you explain the plot, because I I have some theories, but yeah, I agree with you. Well, anyway, this uh, this movie's about a uh, a new mine opening up in the uh, Donetsk step everybody around is really excited for this new source of income and the guy who's running the mine uh pavel fedorovich is uh recruiting people and uh the experienced miner griva is there checking out the the uh what's happening with this mine and is helping to to set it up and he meets the uh the mine. How would you, how would you describe Liuda's role? She's she's a leader of some sort. She's she's like a team leader, but uh, Liuda is uh, this 
young blonde woman who, uh, beautiful blonde woman who has a lot of responsibility in this mine and, uh, you know, for, for directing people to work in the mine. And uh, he falls in love with her, but he's uh, this really full of himself and he's a, a drunk and he, you know, just comes off as a real prick. The arc of the movie is basically Grieva sort of redeeming himself. The film opens with him in the hospital, you know, covered in bandages and we don't know why. And he like, when he wakes up in the hospital bed, he gets out of bed and goes and punches some guy out and we don't know why. And and this movie is then sort of flashes back to this, the mine opening and, and how Griva ended up in this hospital and, and going to punch out this guy. And uh, yeah, Griva has serious, uh, a serious case of blue collar worker angst. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's such a, it's such like a Hollywood, you know, like Griva would be played by Marlon Brando. Right. But his love for Liuda uh, makes him want to be a better man, and he ends up, you know, wanting to join her team, and uh, you know, ends up bribing a uh, some some politician somewhere so that he can, you know, be a part of her team. Uh, Pavel Fedorovich tells him that, oh, you've got to buy this pink lampshade for this one guy so that you can be part of this, which I thought was interesting to see in a in a Soviet film. It's like, oh, here's here's some petty corruption in the uh, in the Soviet bureaucracy. But yeah, and then he leads his own, he, he gets to select his men to be, to do some dangerous thing in the mine. And they're all a bunch of artistic types, literary types, and they're made fun of. Go, oh, these guys can't even lift a hammer. Like all the other tough miners are like, these these guys are going to suck. They, they can't, they can't mine. And then they end up really showing up everybody else. And, and so Grieva is... Uh, you know, champion of the people, a champion of the artist, champion of can-do attitude. And, uh, you know, he proves himself to Liuda. And uh, also the title of the film, Flower on the Stone, refers to this stone that uh, that was found in, in this area, I guess, this 300,000-year-old fossil of flower in this piece of coal that was presented to Peter the Great. Grieva wants to is sort of inspired by the story to find another one like this, and he finds the, another another fossil, another flower on the stone, just just like uh, was presented to Peter the Great, and he presents it to Liuda. So just to show how devoted he is. Story B is about uh, Christina, who's from another town, and her her father has sent her to this town where the, the the mine is opening, saying, "Okay, go go and stay with this you know religious sect." These this She's Pentecostal, and her father says, "Oh, brother, so and so in in this town will, will has a place for you to stay." So she goes to this town. When did Pentecostals end up in Russia? I found that to be the most fascinating part of this whole movie. Not to derail, I, I still want to hear the end of what you're saying. <laughs> no, it's it is in- interesting because it, they're referred to as a sect. It's like there must be very few of these people uh, in in this area, and of course, it's a christian sect so it's uh and it's religion in soviet russia so they're of course evil right yeah you're already suspicious when christina shows up and this uh father zabroda or whatever is already like you know has this lustful look on his face and is like touching her a lot and you think oh this guy's bad news she ends up falling in love with another miner a nice guy named arsene and uh he wants to marry her but she can't can only marry a Christian. So he says, okay, I'll convert to your religion. But then he gets made fun of by the other miners because of it. And 
causes a big scene. The the miners, a bunch of them, you know, sort of coordinated by the this father Zabroda. Um, they they conspire to beat the shit out of Arsene, and and Griva comes to help, and that's how he proves Griva proves his heroism because he's the one who gets the brunt of the attack, and this is where we see. If it wasn't clear before that religion is bad and all these Pentecostals are evil, this is where we find out that, yes, the, this, these people are bad news. Well, he also, like, tells Arsene to be, at, at the beginning, like, you know, you have to, if you really love her, then you'd cut one of your fingers off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he wants to marry Christina himself, so he's against Arsene no matter what. Yeah, it all comes together and the, the people win in the end. It has the greatest, one of the greatest ending lines of any Soviet film I've ever heard, which is, we're stronger than the preacher and there's no God in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it says it all right there. And he says it with such a like, in such a reassuring way, or it's like, you know, it's like in the American movie, he'd be grabbing her and being like, and now, like, and now we're free and the land is ours and God bless America. Like, but it's like, you know, it's the same shot, but it's like, and God's dead, you know, like, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, this this movie's a bit tackier than Ukrainian Rhapsody. Uh, very, very stuck in Soviet realism. And I also, I mean, I don't mind Soviet realism. I, I find this stuff pretty easy to watch. The story is engaging, but it's also, you know, pretty stodgy, pretty square. There's not much interesting filmmaking going on here. Um yeah, I'm I'm curious to see what you thought Parajanov might have been responsible for. There's certain things with like Griva tumbling down the the big mountain of coal that seems you know has sort of that energetic camera work of Parajanov and I don't know. What what do you think? Yeah, I'm with you. Like, I mean, most of this movie is really it's it's shot really stodgily and like I'm I'm with you like I I don't hate Soviet realism at all. Uh, I act, I do also find it pretty fun to watch half the time, and I especially love it when they get into that. Like, there's a great scene of like these men working. They're digging this mine at the beginning, and like they're working hard, and like then suddenly it starts to rain, and they're like working through the rain and the wind, and it's these very like hyper angled shots you know, shot um, from below. So they look courageous and they're always striking on an angle, which is another very like strong Soviet shape, you know, these sort of very Soviet positive imagery, but it's so dynamic looking. It's so stylized and, and cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just like, I love that stuff so much. And yeah, I don't know if like, I, I'm inclined to sort of believe that Parajanov, I think that he must have done the beginning. It seems to me, I mean, number one, the movie just kind of ends in a weird way. And like, then you, then after I watched it, I found out about the whole thing where the, the director was, uh, you know, jailed for the murder on set, which is crazy. But um, I got the sense that Parajanov likely had to recut this and restructure it in order to like, just use the stuff that they had. And so I think like the fact that this begins with a weird nonlinear flashback and like Griva escaping the hospital and running away, like that all felt very Parajanov to me, just the way it was shot mm -hmm. um, with that moving camera as he's kind of like runs through this desolate landscape. I'm trying to think there was a handful of other, Oh, like there's all those great shots of just like machinery that are just shot they're so they're shot so energetically it made me wonder if maybe Parajanov was involved but it's also very like traditionally soviet like you know again like that strong worker 
structure and form so i'm not i'm not sure there's plenty of that in like letter never sent and uh, right you know, and it's it's very soviet it, it feels more kalatasov to me than parajanov a lot of that mach- you know the powerful machinery and the powerful workers and the the angles of them striking the stones all all of that is yeah it's very like 1920s soviet cinema right even like eisenstein yeah Yeah, whereas the the uh ukrainian rhapsody is very dovchenko this this one is awfully eisenstein yeah i mean i i get the i honestly like it it doesn't feel totally like a parajanov movie and we just sort of included it because his name is on it (laughs) but uh i don't know it was fun to watch i mean like there's a handful of good quotes in this actually i like there's a a line about and they're all like they're all these sort of government approved lines but i don't know they i got a real kick out of them like when they're descending into the mine i mean number one like the fact that ludia they they make a big point about like oh it's a woman who wants to go into the mine and like you know that that she's so proud to come back up with her face covered in soot and you're like oh she's definitely gonna die of black lung like you know a year or something um you know but that's all kind of really fun like they they sort of show how these miners are are going down into the depths and like there's one line i think it's griva talks about like yuri gagarin went into space and we're going into the earth (laughs) (laughs) or like you know um when the uh varchenko who owns the mine you know, like Ludia bitches about like, you know, oh, this guy likes me. This guy Griva likes me, but he just gave me a rock and he like turns it over and it's that fossil. And he's like, it's a fossil of a flower that's 300,000 years old. He's a poet and you didn't get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I enjoyed all of that. And then the Pentecostals, like, what the frick? Like, <laughs> <laughs> what? Like, how? When did they come to Russia? That, that was that's a I thought Pentecostals were very American. I don't know. I mean, that's maybe they're they were mislabeled in the uh, in the translation we saw. But there I think the idea is that they're just this very small Christian sect that uh, are allowed to exist because they don't make themselves very known. And but once they start to get involved in the the lives of non-Christians, there's nothing but trouble. I'm not sure that Pentecostal uh, thing is very significant other than. Somebody decided, oh, here's a small Christian sect. Let's let's call them Pentecostals. Yeah, maybe. Or just that it, it's because it's Protestant and not Catholic. I don't know. Yeah. And there's that whole flashback to the court of Peter the Great. That whole sequence is... Oh, is, that was the Parajanov, definitely. Yeah, that was that was really kind of dreamlike and, and sort of funny. A lot of wackiness in there. And it has a completely different tone than the rest of the movie. So that... Yeah, it's like a reenactment of the first miner who ever found coal. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh and it's done in a really stylized way and uh so it's it's hard not to give Parjanov credit for that mainly because it just stands out so much from the rest of the film. Right, it has nothing to do with anything <laughs> other than Parjanov was like if I'm if my name's going to be on this, we're getting in a goddamn dream <laughs> sequence. <laughs> well, uh, finally, we, we get to Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. Yeah. 
1965 Parajanov-Ilyenko uh, first collaboration, the movie that basically made both of their names, uh, especially internationally, and uh, got them into a world of shit for the rest of their lives, unfortunately. And it's such a such a well-known film. I mean, everyone, you know, every single person who was involved in this uh, movie got into a ton of shit. And even the lead actor, Ivan Michalacek, uh, he was barred from uh, working for years after this movie um, just because of his participation. Really? Because he was, seemed like he was a big star. He was in a couple of the movies that we watched for our Ukraine episode. I yeah, believe. he was also charged with like Ukrainian nationalism, basically. <laughs> And yeah, no, I mean, he went on to have a have a career, but, um, you know, it was Parajanov was really the only person who ended up getting thrown in jail continuously. And it was not ever specifically for movies. It was always for like bisexuality or nationalism, which I mean, is movie related. But, you know, there was always some reason that they found to, to throw Parajanov in jail. But, you know, like Ilyanko never ended up in jail. Uh, he certainly had trouble. And, and, you know, this, this movie outraged uh, all these Soviet authorities for, again, and this is something we talked about in our, our Dovchenko uh, episode too, but that, you know, if they wanted to, to see the Soviet ideals, they never wanted to see uh, the things that made these different areas unique and, and to bring back these, the cultural heritage of all these places was a no-no for them because it, you know, made you not, it made you less um, interested in being a Soviet because you identified as a Ukrainian and, and whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, this Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors is based on a book by Ukrainian author Mikhailo Katsubinsky, who uh, wrote this novel in 1911, which is roughly when this movie would have taken place. It's one of these things that um, you're going to watch this movie and you need to watch this movie. And I'm going to tell you the entire plot of this movie because you're going to appreciate that once you <laughs> see this movie. Um, to me, this is one of the most, there, there's like a few times in my life where I felt like I was just completely out of my depth the first time that I experienced something. And this movie for many reasons is one of them. And it was actually, I would actually credit this film as being, one of the things that both sparked my interest in in foreign film and broadened like specifically broadened my horizons because my initial reaction the first time that i saw this was pure hatred <laughs> wow <laughs> i hated this movie so much and i saw it like i saw it in a theater probably the best possible way to have seen this and i was so livid uh at this film and it's because of the way it was shot i like it the whole thing is shot on handheld has this constantly moving it has these weird angles it has this its own cinematic language which is like thank you uh to ilyenko for the most part i would say but also parajanov has like a clear hand in so much of what's happening in this and it's a story that is in a culture that is just completely alien. The <laughs> It's so miserable, you know, and the way that it was shot at the time that I saw this when I was a, I was a teenager, I was in college, you know, and I thought of myself as being open. I was uh, taking a Russian film studies course and, and uh, I, you know, was was interested in Russian film and, and I just hated everything about this. And it was because it it to me, the cinematic language of it felt like it was telling me a comedy 
and it was nothing like <laughs> totally miserable, horrible fairy tale, you know, extremely Ukrainian in that way. <laughs> and uh, I resented it just so much. And and the music was insane and the, the story was bizarre and I just could not like I just it blew my little mind and I didn't understand it. And it was it was the uh, the movie where. I it was one of the the first movies where like I hated it so much and I could not stop thinking about it for days and days and days and days until I realized that the feeling that of hatred was in fact a feeling of love. (laughs) It was like one of the you know, this is my own romantic comedy in life uh, with this movie where I was like, what happened? And then I have since rewatched it multiple times. And every single time I rewatch it, I just appreciate it and love it even more. And also it becomes so much less insane the more you watch it. I don't know about you. Did you, that, did you have a, uh, how did you feel the first time you saw this? I, actually, your story is, is somewhat similar to my experience with the color of pomegranates. I hated that the first time I saw I thought it was beautiful, but hated it. Saw this movie after I saw that one and, and it seems so easy, so basic, <laughs> right. so like harmless, you know, it seemed like, oh, here's a really straightforward, easy to watch movie. So it seems funny that you had such a response to this movie. Well, see, I, I saw Color of Pomegranates immediately after and thought, oh, well, you know, at least like this, that one doesn't even try to, to make sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyhow, the plot of Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors is that we are in the Carpathian Mountains of Ukraine and we're talking about the Hutzel people who are like the um, indigenous Ukrainians. <laughs> I don't know how else to call them. They have their own very, very specific culture uh, of, and dress and um, religion, this uh, staunchly uh, orthodox group of people. And uh, this movie opens on this amazing shot of Ivan's brother getting crushed to death by a tree. Because Ivan, he's pushing Ivan out of the way. And Ivan is our, our main character, of course. His life just goes downhill from, from that moment, pretty much. And that was like his fifth brother to die, too, or something. We find right. Out. We <laughs> learn later on. Yeah, he has like uh, every other brother has died. He's the only one left. And it's just him and his mother and his father. And then they all go to church. And his father ends up getting killed uh, with an axe to the head. Because he challenges this other man to a duel because he perceives him as a crook because he's like collecting money for the church, but he's sort of pocketing it for himself. That man is the father of Marichka, who is another young girl who's roughly the same age as Ivan. And the two of them get into this tussle because their parents are fighting. But then they're both little kids, and so they, they end up befriending each other, and you know they don't really hold each other accountable for what their parents did. Their meeting blossoms into a, a friendship that blossoms into a romance at a very young age. And uh, they, you know, this is it for them. Like they have found their their soulmates and they are all about each other. But uh, of course, reality comes in and uh, Yvonne has to support his mother. Um, he doesn't really, you know, it's like he, he also has no money. <laughs> they were poor to begin with. And then when the father got killed and, and all of his brothers and, and siblings were murdered, then, you know, <laughs> it's all on Ivan now. And so he can't even get married to Marichka because he has to make some money. And also their families hate each other. So they have to make their own way in the world. They can't 
live in an you know an extended family type situation, which seems to be pretty pretty much the the regular thing in Hutzel society. Right. Yeah. I mean, like the the fact that they even have this romance is it's like the kind of thing that that everyone knows about and yet is a secret. Uh, like they're always like frolicking in a, in the woods somewhere and and doing it out of sight. Quite literally, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. And uh, Ivan ends up having to leave the village for work. He goes off to like 10 sheep in a field somewhere uh, to both, you know, support his family and also gain enough money to to try and marry Marichka. And he leaves her, of course, unknowingly in a, a compromised position because she's pregnant uh, and they're not married. So there's this, you know, brief drama of like, is she going to end up giving birth? Like what's going to happen to her? Because that I'm sure would be just as horrific as him abandoning her. But of course, there is then a freak accident where all of the sheep uh, wander and one of these little baby lambs ends up on a ledge on a cliff and Marichka finds it and she climbs the, the ledge to rescue the sheep and then her foot slips and she falls into this raging river and drowns. It's it's a beautiful sequence. I mean, we'll talk about the, the movie in a second, I guess. But um, so Ivan, his whole life is, is now over and the whole film turns into black and white as he kind of barely gets through his day, um, you know, just trying to, to keep his head down and work. But he also kind of falls into complete despair He's essentially homeless and, and, you know, kind of wanders around in a, in a daze of nothingness because his whole life is over for him because Marichka died. Eventually, he ends up meeting this Pelagna, who is a rich young thing, and she takes a real shine to him and ends up, uh, they end up getting married in this really fantastic sequence of uh, traditional Hutzel marriage, which was where the two... The, the husband and wife get yoked together like cows and blindfolded. And then afterward, uh, they strip each other naked and are meant to copulate. But there's this like very Parajanov scene where he rips her necklace off and the, the beads of that fall to the floor. And so we know that Pal- Palagna will not get pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> His seed has been spilled, but... Um, she doesn't get pregnant. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, also, uh, Yvonne is, you know, emotionally distant, to say the least. He is still completely hung up on Marichka, and he spends all of his time sort of looking for her ghost and thinking about her. And, you know, she gets fed up eventually, old Pelagna. And she's been, meanwhile, she's also like trying every trick in the book, uh, literally as far as witchcraft goes to, to get pregnant. Um, there's this, another amazing scene where she walks stark naked through a field and into like an apple orchard and prays to God and the spirits to to help her get pregnant. What happens is she gets she gets sent a local sorcerer uh, named Yurko, who uh, she ends up striking up a, a romance with in part because, you know, everything with with Yvonne is just so terrible and crummy. Time passes, the the two, uh, Pelagna and Yurko, are seen blatantly canoodling at a bar, and Yvonne's friend tries to stand up for him, and Yurko ends up punching the guy out, which Yvonne finally rallies because he sees it happening, and that's what throws him into this fit of rage, and he tries to challenge, in, in, in an exact parallel of the scene of his father's death, 
He uh, challenges Yurko to a duel with axes, and Yurko, of course, chops him down right, like right through the skull. And uh, and yeah, and then we we see the funeral of uh, Ivan, which is like traditional Hutzel funeral. We also get to see, thankfully, the only glimmer of hope is that him being dead <laughs> reunites <laughs> with with Marishka. Yep, the their two ghosts unite but they're but it's like it's one of these things that's like it's shot so beautifully with like all of the trees spinning around them and the way that it was shot too is like they have them in a forest they have this foreground of a tree of trees on a wheel that are spinning in front of the camera so that the character can then stand um behind it or even in the middle of this wheel so that as the camera turns around the trees are turning in an opposite direction and the character is turning in another direction so it's like this totally disorienting beautiful shot and they have this beautiful reunion of the two of them and 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 then it it like it gets undercut by them the realization like oh no we're both dead (laughs) (laughs) well they're painted silver so we know they're dead well, we know they're dead, but they don't know they're dead until they they realize. Wait, how could I? How could you be here unless? Dun, dun, dun. And that's the movie. And and when I say that I have spoiled nothing for you, I I guarantee that I have spoiled nothing for you because this movie is just so insane that it has to be seen, uh, and multiple times. And the plot is like so tertiary to what's like fantastic about this film. Yeah, it's uh, my main interest in it is really ethnographic, I have to say, like the costumes are amazing and just the rituals and the, you know, just the way that this village functions is just fascinating to watch. And there's a lot of music and, you know. Oh, my God, the music in this movie we have to talk about, because this is another time there's there's very few times in my life where I've heard music. That made me just stop and say, like, what alien composed this? <laughs> like, I have never in my life heard something like this. And I, my brain doesn't even know how to comprehend this music with that Hutzel, traditional Hutzel music in, like, atonal opera. The first time <laughs> that I heard both of those things, I was like, what planet am I on? And I, I looked up this time, I looked up all of these instruments. And uh, we're going to go through them, Bart, real quick. We have the trombita which is that really long horn like they have in the Alps, mm-hmm. which is like it will haunt you till the end of your days after you hear it in this movie because it, the Alps ones are so much nicer sounding. <laughs> we have Sopilka, which is like this flute, this like, you know, sort of hand carved flute that has also like this sh- a shrillness to it that is on tune and yet sounds off tune. There's this Dreamba, which is like a, a Jew's harp, like that mouth thing, that mouth harp, uh, that also is just like it, it should it belongs in a comedy. It's the weirdest sounding thing ever. And then we have the Simbali, which is like a hammer dulcimer. And all of these things are playing at once and as as like loudly and quickly as possible. <laughs> it's great. And the the camera work matches the you know the the speed and uh, chaos of the music and, and the, the whole movie has just got, you know, you're, you're constantly in motion and well, until Yvonne is, is all bummed out and in black and white and then everything slows down for a while. But then, uh, but then the wedding happens and, and things get exciting and, and, uh, and ethnographic again, 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's just a really enjoyable folk tale. I mean, it's described as the Ukrainian Romeo and Juliet, and that sort of gets you started on what this movie is. But it's not, you know, it doesn't follow that that formula really in any other way. Like, you know, other than these two doomed lovers who are you know, never meant to be together. And it's there is this sort of there there. I've seen it. A, I've seen it a couple times, but uh, there, there are things I picked up on this time that that I didn't the first time. And uh, certain things like it's just there's this idea of the hand of fate in there that I didn't really pick up on before. Like when Marishka dies, it's you know, they're they're separated. They're in they're in different towns, very far apart from each other, but they're both sleeping outside and they both see the same star uh, in the sky and, you know, this romantic, you know, we're sleeping under the same sky sort of idea. But then Marishka follows this star and you think, oh, she's it's going to guide her to Ivan somehow. But no, it's just guiding her to her death. Like this is when it's guiding her to the, you know, she she finds out that there's a lost lamb and then she has to go after the lamb. And then it starts pouring out. And the, so it's like the fates have conspired to to make sure that she and and Ivan don't don't get together uh, until until the afterlife. And there's you know, there's a lot of stuff like that. But I guess it just sort of goes along with it being a folktale. In certain ways, it resembles some of the uh, the Rao movies we, we watched that were, you know, real fairy tales. Right. Um, especially the uh, that Gogol one that we watched. Yeah, but this has its own feel like it definitely is not like anything that was seen before 1965. Like, I, I can't think of anything that was really a, a model for the the way this movie was put together, was shot, the, you know, the tone of it. It's just, it's it's one of those movies that you see and, and you think, oh yeah, this I, I understand why this is an important movie. It's just not like anything you've seen before. It's totally radical. There's so many rich textures and prints and patterns and natural and, and man-made uh, in this whole movie. I mean, it's just, it's it's, as you said, the ethnographic part of this is as interesting as the way that it's shot. I mean, just the way that the, the these like thatched roofs look <laughs> like there's a scene where he's replacing boards on the roof. And it's like, that's fascinating. And it's in, of, in and of itself, the, the sheepskins and these like paisley patterns, like with flowers. And the fact that even like there's there's whole sections of this movie that are told in overheard conversations, like gossips and whispers, like we change narrators over and over. And we, you know, change perspectives and, and we change camera styles, even though there's like a there's a clear style to this. There's no holding back. This is just like it's so free and completely different. And at the same time, it, for all of that we're seeing and so much of, of this like beautiful art direction and so much of this like beautifully staged stuff. Uh, and some of the, the details that I find most fascinating, too, are like when Marichka dies we never see her die. Like we, we see like her foot slip, uh, a couple of falling rocks. We see the rapids. And then when we find her body, which is this absolutely gorgeous one take shot of the cameraman who's like weaving in and out. It's Ilyenko weaving in and out 
of the the shore and all of these people who are looking for her and then crying for her and just the way that these like women are are mourning that they found her it's like this is told in its own song in its own strange way and then when we finally see her dead body when we when Yvonne gets all the way down the rocks and all the way down the shore and finally he gets to see her body up close the camera never does the camera actually just focuses on her feet and we see them just like wet and like you know covered in mud and we know what happened you know what I mean like even if we hadn't seen anything before that it's like just from from this her feet it's just beautiful I don't know it's just so well done it's just so intelligent. It's like this this language of of hashtag that cinema baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Yvonne's death scene is pretty spectacular. Also, when he goes into this you know all white tavern, which really looks like a movie set that they put a, a table in the middle of. It's like the totally white walls, you know, and it's really reminiscent of a lot of the shots that he composes for the well, Kiev frescoes that we're going to talk about and, and color pomegranates. But this is where Ivan confronts Yurko, going to beat him up and picks up an axe. And uh, a, a lot of that scene is done in, in sort of a first-person perspective, Ivan's perspective, until Yurko strikes with his hammer or axe or whatever it is. And uh, then all of a sudden, like the, like the camera image sort of splits apart it's like in this sort of red tone and it's you know double image and we get a whole bunch of Yvonne spinning around the room and it's got this you know I can't even describe what what's happened to this with this image it's just it's trippy and I'm I'm sure it uh you know if you didn't uh if you didn't love that part of the the first time you saw this movie you pro- I'm sure you love it now but it's uh and then you just get Yvonne in his in his death throes, like he, you know, he gets out of the tavern and he, you know, is wandering around the village and uh, bumping into things. And it's really, it's uh, that also, like both of the death scenes are, are spectacular. They're, you know, the most memorable things in this movie. And uh, I don't know why. Parajanov, uh, maybe it's the marriage of, uh, of interesting technique and, uh, a you know a emotional moment in the, in the in the storytelling combining to you know, into something extraordinary but uh you know other than the the music and costumes like those those are the scenes i remember best from this movie and this movie was it was a hit when it came out um it ended up it had a release in the ussr it it drew a, a pretty big crowd but uh it was critically got was totally mixed reception it was even shopped around to so many notable international film festivals. It was pretty much like shown around the world from 65 to, to 66, you know, and that was then when, you know, Soviet censors finally got pissed <laughs> because it was never, you know, this was such, it was such a radical departure from socialist uh, realism. There was too much Ukrainianness in it. Uh, you know, even things like there's so many, there's so many symbols. And I think like, even us having watched all the Ukrainian films that we've watched. But I feel like if you watch this, you can get the the root of a ton of uh, really basic Ukrainian symbols, like, you know, the rooster or sorcery mixed with uh, like Orthodox Catholicism. <laughs> There's like quite a bit in this movie that uh, it feels like it sort of helps you unlock uh, other films. But um, all of that stuff, of course, was was bad for Soviet 
censors and um, the fact that this was so uh, dramatically different and pushed too many boundaries uh, got Parajanov, as I said, locked up. But I think the artiness of it really is the problem. I mean, I, th I think a lot of you know Soviet filmmakers who wanted a bit of freedom often would choose subjects in the past because they were safe from like the the censors saying that they're criticizing the Soviet government and you know they can get in religious themes because it's set in the past so they're not saying you know saying oh we should you know not not talking about religious in a in a contemporary setting but but talking about it in the past that that should be okay um but i think you know, combined with the fact that this is just a celebration of a very individual culture within this united Soviet state. Um, and it's just so, so arty. And it's not, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it feels like it's, it's made for, like, I don't I don't know if, if Soviet censors are really, you know, there, there is a certain attitude, like, Oh, this movie is just for intellectuals. It's not for the people. So this is not what we want to be showing. And I think that's part of the problem too. That this is this is meant for a sort of an elite audience, and that's that's part of the problem. So that's it's the artiness and the you know sort of exclusivity of, of the of the cinematic language and the you know the how it's not not intended for a a universal Soviet audience. That was that was the real problem. I think there's also just that attitude, which was definitely happening in all around, well, at least in the U.S. for sure, about like you know, yeah, if it if you're not conforming, then you're you're against us, <laughs> mm. you know. And so anything that that feels radical or unruly or um, different is immediately a negative connotation, which I think is, you know, you hear you feel echoes of that today, but you know, there's definitely more of a an audience that's hungry for the radical and the different and the artsy and the nonconformist that, uh, you know, I think in the sixties was a lot harder to sell. Yeah. Well, the next film we're going to talk about, uh, a spring for the thirsty Yuri Ilyenko's debut feature. Was not allowed to be screened at all. It was made the same year, but uh, was not. This is not one of those movies I was talking about where nobody saw this thing until the the mid to late eighties. Yeah, it's it's a very arty film, and it's I'm my job is to. Uh, relay the the plot so you have an idea of, of what this movie is about but it's it's kind of a puzzle I mean it gives you hints as to what's happening but it's kind of hard to parse we've got this old man in this remote desert village in Ukraine who has this well in his yard and he's the the well keeper and people come from all around to to drink from this well because it's the desert and there's it's hard to find water but now he's an old man, and it's it's hard to tell what's in flashback uh, and what's what's happening now in this movie because often the old man, uh, played by Dmitry Milyutenko, uh, is 
you know, he's present in these flashback scenes as an old man. So it's kind of putting all this, all of these things into some kind of chronological structure. It probably doesn't even matter, but trying to figure out what's happening when is it's, <laughs> it's difficult to, to, uh, to decipher, but he's definitely a sad <laughs> old man. His, he, he, he dreams about his young young, beautiful wife who's, you know, no longer alive, but we also get scenes of her older and giving him a hard time about not taking care of the well or the house. And he's got one son who died in in a war, and we keep seeing, like, these flashes of this jet plane in the sky, which is, you know, alluding to the fact that his son was a, died in a, you know, was a fighter pilot and died in a fighter plane and the most story ish part of this film comes when the old man is trying to build a coffin and we find out that, you know, he's, he's just finding, you know, any spare wood he can find to, to build this coffin. We find out it's for himself. And then uh, towards the middle of the movie, he, he gets into the coffin himself. So it's a coffin for him. And then uh, many family members, we don't know how they're related, um, but we assume, you know, at least a couple of them are sons of his. I don't, but, you know, a bunch of his family members come to, like, because he's invited them, maybe, to um, to see him because they got word he was dead, probably. But they come and he's alive in this coffin. You know, then there's a lot of mockery of him and you know, how he's a useless old man and... Um, also in this, with his family comes the pregnant wife of his son who died, I believe. You know, it's it's <laughs> it's really hard to say. It's hard to put this movie into to uh, into narrative terms, and it's not even the most notable thing about this movie. I, I I need to talk about what it looks like, but but first, let me. I don't know. Maybe I don't need to say much more than that. It's just you know the dreary life of an old man. He's turned all his all the photographs of his family around in his house so so he doesn't have to think about them and he's just ready to to die and towards the end there's sort of this glimmer of hope and uh you know a reason for him to keep on going perhaps having to do with this uh the symbol that uh the Russians and Ukrainians seem to really like having to do with apples <laughs> falling from a tree and uh <laughs> which I don't quite get, but it has to do with birth and life, I guess, childhood, something. Yeah. But now, is there anything you want to add to that in terms of plot, storyline? Is there anything that you made out in this plot that I didn't make reference to? Um, I like there's a scene where he he builds that coffin and, you know, he lays in it and then he gets out of it and he uses it as a boat. And it feels like he's kind of going down the river sticks because <laughs> he also later puts coins on his <laughs> eyes as he lays in the coffin. Uh, but I'm with you. Yeah, no, it's hard. It, it, there's not so much a plot as there is a series of images on a very specific theme. But there is a plot. Right. And the images are it's a black and white film, but it's totally blown out, overexposed black and white. So it's, it, you know, you're pretty much looking at a at a pure white screen and you know certain you know images of darkness come through it's it's hard to describe how the effect was achieved because it's it's it seems high contrast but when you get to certain dark 
areas, it's in very nice grayscale tones. So I'm not quite sure how Ilienko achieved this effect, but he he shot it himself. This was his baby. He he wanted his movie to look like this, and and he it it sure looks like nothing else. It gives the the sense of gives everything sort of a dreamy feel to it, and also sort of the gives a sense of the oppressive heat of the sun and the desert. But yeah, a lot of the a lot of the time when you're looking you know, when you're outside looking at the horizon, everything is just blown out, and you can only see the foreground and some of the people in it. It's unique. It's never hard to decipher the images themselves. I mean, you know what you're looking at. It's not shot to to abstraction. Like it's it's really clear what these images are. It just all of the images have this blown out, you know, white blown out quality to them. And it really gives certain things like the these these long boards that are that we've seen in other Ukrainian roofs uh, in films in this uh, movie uh, really have a, a very particular look when they're you know shot this way. And there's you know, really, it's just a a series of really stunning images, a lot of beautiful things stand out that don't necessarily have any narrative or even necessarily symbolic meaning. Like one thing that I like sticks in my head is when there's this windmill that is also in the yard that these kids are are playing on and they hang on the, one of the windmill blades and they, they ride it up in the air and then drop off. And it's just, it's just a beautiful looking scene that, that he holds for a nice long time because it's so amazing looking. I mean, I thought that that had a meaning in as much as I thought that one of the themes of this movie was this idea of, you know, an old an old man who is aging out of a country that is moving on past him. And I, I feel like there was definitely that Ukrainian nationalism in this and that, I mean, there's a scene where the, the there's a guy who, like a Russian soldier who gets shot in the f- head. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't, wasn't sure if that was one of his sons. Or not? It's n- it's never very clear who anybody is. In this Based, film. Uh, actually, I mean, like I was. This is one of those movies where I I knew that I was missing things, so I went uh and and looked up other reviews. Um, and on Letterboxd, funny enough, found somebody who had gone to a screening that was um given by Ilyenko's son, and uh, apparently that guy is speaking in Russian. Which obviously is is something a distinction that for people that don't speak Ukrainian or Russian is is quite hard to to tell the difference. But um, apparently he speaks in Russian, and so he gets shot in the head, which is definitely a political statement. Um, which his okay. son, uh, quoting this, this is a letterbox user Ira Machine uh, said that the first quote, the first person who spoke Russian in the film was immediately killed, which is a good tradition joked Ilyenko's son at the screening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, you know, some strong feelings there, but, um, but I do think that like, it does come kind of clear. I mean, like where basically like his other son who comes in with the family and he's like the young father and his like daughter is blinding him by like holding her hands over his eyes. Oh, when they're looking for their mother's grave. Yeah, and she's riding on his shoulder. She's not blinding him, but she's covering his eyes. And then also these scenes of like children frolicking and like young people seem to be generally doing totally fine in this movie. But like he as this older man is just like, as you said, waiting and ready for death all the time. 
So, uh, and the other thing too is just like, as this movie goes on, the, there's a theme song to this movie. And as, as the film continues, the theme song gets even more just like discordant as it, as it goes on, which was interesting. So like, there's really no, there's no positive answer here though. I think it ends on a slightly positive note in a weird way, but it feels very much like this, like the, like, you know, the old ways confronting the new ways was like what I took away from this. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the younger people or the, you know, his, his family that come to see him in his coffin are clearly far more cosmopolitan. They, they've abandoned the village life and the, this old man who's, you know, has nothing but his well and his pottery, you know, doesn't, doesn't want to do anything but that, but he's, he's had enough. So there is definitely a time, times of change that, uh, civilization the old way of life in ukrainian villages is is behind the times fallen behind and this guy is is stuck in the old ways yeah and it's only when he like sees a glimmer of hope in the future in this like you know the pregnant wife of his dead son that he sort of starts to like then he starts fixing his well you know plants a tree and whatever <laughs> well and that's that's Marishka from uh Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors she plays two roles in this movie at least two roles as far as i can tell she has she's got blonde hair as the young pregnant wife of her his dead son and she also plays his own wife uh with dark hair in flashbacks and it turns out that uh that Ilyenko married Larissa Karachinkova. So yeah, she she shows up in all of these Ilyenko films that we watch. I know, and he's always killing her. I know. <laughs> <laughs> he's always drowning her. And then they got divorced uh, in the seventies. So you know, just saying. But uh, I like this movie too. I thought this was it was interesting. Uh, it reminded me, and maybe it was just because of how it was shot and its sort of reliance on sound and still photography reminded me a little bit of Lajati. Hmm. But like the like the more like the miserable and lonely version. Like there's nothing really about love in this. It's just more about misery. <laughs> yeah. It does you know, the high contrast black and white does kind of have a Lajati feel to it. Which is just to say that it, it feels completely out of time and, and place for a Soviet film. I connected it to the Stone Cross, which we watched in the yeah. Ukrainian episode uh, we did last year. You know, this old man who's stuck in the old ways and needs to find uh, you know, some meaning in his life, but, uh, but can't leave the, the old ways behind. Um, but the Stone Cross has a, has a more comprehensible story. Also a very arty film, but not uh, not nearly as abstract and non-narrative as this one. But I also highly recommend this film. It is, you know, it's not boring at all. It actually has touches of humor, dark humor at times, as opposed to The Color of Pomegranates, which we'll talk about later. The lack of cohesive narrative is not, doesn't pose that much of a problem getting through this movie. There are enough hints of what may be going on that it, that sort of, there's enough narrative to get you through it, even though it's it's hard to interpret what exactly is going on. But I thought this was great. Yeah, this this was definitely it was this was a very Bard film. Yeah. <laughs> well, the next two that we're going to talk about uh, briefly, just because they are short films, uh, are two um, half-made movies that Parajanov was uh, trying to get off the ground, and that got shut down continuously by the government. 
unfortunately. And then after both of these movies uh, is when he got locked up for uh, bisexuality, I think. But but this time in Russia as opposed to Georgia. Uh, but Kiev Fresco's 1966, he was making this. This was right after Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. And this movie, it, it's a complete lead up to Color of Pomegranates, except it takes place in modern day Ukraine. And I don't even know. I mean, it's it's really short. It's like only 14 minutes left of footage exists. And it's all stunningly gorgeous. <laughs> it's like it rules so much. It's just, you know, these different tableaus that are like of people sort of all the windows of Kiev and like soldiers uh, sitting in a room all moving in sync and nurses. And uh, there's this beautiful sequence where like a soldier is asleep with this woman's hair under his head. And as he wakes up, you know, the hair is in, in her hand is like pulled out of frame. So he's just left in the bed alone. Um, everything's just like metaphors and like moving metaphors and, and visually beautiful there's a guy who looks like Soviet Oscar Isaac in it. <laughs> well, and it also feels like like there's you get a little bit of Kiev itself at the beginning and the end. You see some of the the city, but everything between those the brief intro and and coda is just it's all set in this one room that sort of looks like a, a museum gallery room. Like this, the whole movie looks like it's kind of an installation in a way. They've cleared out one set and or, or you know not even a set just you know basic props like a bed in the middle of this white room with wooden floors and it's just all the same room just with different props and and mainly this this one guy this you know gaunt-faced guy um you know say there's a piano with the top taken off and then things happen on the piano top and and it's it, it feels like a gallery installation and but it's it's great the camera will move within this space but you're pretty much stuck in this sort of like proscenium perspective. Like you get further away and, and close up, but it's all sort of the straight on, you get the same white back wall in, you know, throughout. So it's, um, yeah, I, I, Peter Greenaway came to mind. Like I, it's, I mean, mostly it just, it just feels like a, a warm up for the color of pomegranates more than anything. But it's so cool to see the color of pomegranates done with what like a contemporary topic. Mm-hmm. And I like if you can, you know, find this and, and look for it, it got, all got recently restored. All of these short, I mean, I'm calling them short films, but they were, I mean, this was a movie that he was trying to make. And then the government not only shut it down, but demanded that they destroy all the negatives. So the fact that we have anything left is just, uh, it's just footage. It's not really a short film, but um and, and it's also just like a, that's like a straight up it's a straight up a miracle that we even have anything left uh, and it'll just, you know, piss you off about <laughs> a government overreach, quite frankly. But um, in the other short uh, that we have here from Parajanov is this Hakobhov Natanyan 1967. So this is not this was not intended as a short film like this feels more complete. It feels like I mean, it's not I don't know this feels like it is what it intended to be i feel like there could have been more my understanding is that this one is more of a, a short film that was was definitely more intentional but like it it's very um it's it's quite loose it's just really like a study so uh, this uh, hakob uh is this uh armenian artist from the 19th century 
And so it's a study of all of his artwork and his paintings and of all of the details on all of these paintings and the like the faces. And so there's a lot of uh, short little montages that like, here's all the rings, here's all the jewelry, here's all the, uh, you know, the ruffles, here's all the eyes. You uh, get a lot of eyes, you get a lot of hands. Yeah, I mean, a lot of eyes and hands and, and jewelry. Those seem to be the main things. And you, you also get some of the, you know, some furniture and, uh, you know, household items that uh, that are must be from the time that Hackhob was was working. Um, it, it definitely this one also feels a lot like a warm up for Color of Pomegranates, even even more so in a way, because it's what it focuses on, the details that it focuses on. You get sort of the the lace that that shows up later. And, you know, a lot of a lot of his obsessions show up in this movie. But it's I didn't get that excited about it because it's just mainly showing you details of artwork, of portraits that that this guy has painted. And it's uh... I'm, I'm going to sell this to Gen Z and millennials right now. Get, get this, Bart. This is like watching Parajanov's Pinterest board. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's I. That's apt. I don't know if you're going to sell anybody that way, but. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, but I'm with you. It didn't. It. It, it was. Uh, I got more excited over. There's like this giant statue that we see. Yeah, it's a giant sculpture of a woman that it shows very briefly. Oh, it's the mother of Georgia is the name of this, um, this statue. It's in a Tbilisi, and it's gigantic. It's insane. It's this like towering, strong woman with a sword and a bowl, and it's so cool looking. <laughs> yeah, the perspective from which it's shown in the film, it's hard to get a sense of the size of it, but this thing is gigantic. It just it's like towering over this whole city and you're like, What? Like what is happening? <laughs> I loved it. I don't know, it's just like it, it, all of these there, there's a degree of like it's just cultures that are just so um I you know, I'm not used to seeing and so it's just so exciting to to see stuff like that where you're like, This exists in, in the world still today. Well, while Parjanov was busy making films that never saw completion and spending time in jail. Yuri was, uh, was busy making another film, his second film. 1968, uh, The Eve of Ivan Kupalo. And this is based on one of Gogol's Ukrainian folktales and other tr- traditional folktales. And uh, in, in certain ways, it's a sort of a dark, absurdist remake of, uh, of Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. I would recommend watching Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors before watching The Eve of Ivan Kupalo because they, the two movies are clearly playing off each other. In this one, you've got Pidorka is a, uh, a lovely village girl 
who's in love with Petro, but he's just a, a poor laborer. Laborer. Her father wants her to marry this uh, this rich dude. So uh, Petro goes off to make some money to come back so he can claim Pedorka's hand. Meanwhile, she and her little brother Ivis are uh, you know, like to play jokes on their jerky father, like throwing a pig down the chimney, making ghostly sounds to terrify their father, and who puts his head inside a milk jug and runs around, and there's sort of a sped-up slapstick sequence there that's really wacky. This whole movie has... It's a very different tone than Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, but it's got... The setting is very similar. It's not as ornate. It's not so obsessive about costume and details of the uh, Hutsu lifestyle, but it's it definitely it, it is just not to the degree that uh, the Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors is. But they're they're set in the same kind of universe. But this is a very dark, absurdist, more fairy tale ish. Like there's actual magic in this one. But while Petro is off trying to claim his fortune, Pedorka's father sets up the wedding. So she's about to marry this uh, this fat cat. You know, after having this erotic dream where she's, you know, it's clearly a masturbatory fantasy where the devil, this this guy, Basavruk, uh, the, he's got this red face and red costume and he comes to town and causes trouble. And you know, and he rides in on a pig, which is like a, a very Russian-Ukrainian folklore thing. Like, it's always the devil's riding in on a pig. I don't know why, <laughs> but that's a thing. And he chases a priest up a tree and makes him yell cuckoo. But anyway, this this devil visits her in her room, and she has this erotic dream about Petro. In the morning, she she finds out she's about to be married, and sends Ivis off to find Petro to s- tell him what's what's about to happen. But by the time Petro gets back, um, the wedding has already happened, or is almost complete. And Pidorka, of course, played by you know the same actress who played in Ilienko's other two films. Uh, throws herself into the river. She doesn't drown in this one. Uh, Petro comes just in time to save her, but he realizes the only way to save her from this marriage is to make a deal with the this Basavruk, uh, the devil. You know, he has to go and retrieve this fern that only comes out one night of the year and give it to Basavruk, but in order to claim his prize, he has to spill blood and... In this really bizarre dream-like sequence, where he's making this this deal with the devil and, and you know collecting these great riches for getting him this fern, the blood that he spills, it appears that he's murdering Evas, uh, Pedorka's little brother, in order to do it. All of a sudden, he's got these riches, you know, this tree that's got gold pieces hanging from it, and so as soon as he's got all this wealth, he goes back and marries. Pidorka, and they have this big wedding, and this wedding is in the middle of this you know, man-made island, in the middle of the river, and uh, as they're riding the boat back to shore, this blankness comes over Petro, like he's starting to realize that, that he did something awful to make this happen, you know, not until this moment does he realize that, oh, wait a minute, how did this happen? You know, and everyone in the village is also wondering, like, how how did he get all these riches? And you've got these thieves who come and try and take his money. And this is also done in sort of a slapstick way. And Petro and Pedorka are floating on the on the wall, and it's it's all very fantastical and done in really. It's a crazy looking film. It has this 
this fairy tale dream logic to it that's really appealing and it's easy to to follow the the story um is it part <laughs> i i thought so <laughs> i mean i'm i missed something you know after all this happens and Petro gets gets worse and worse and is really just cannot remember exactly what horrible thing he did, but knows it was something horrible. And he finally gets a, a visit from Basavruk and he explodes in flames and is just a pile of ashes. And then what Pidorka does with those ashes to, you know, has to go to a sorceress and pray to the Virgin Mary and do all, all sorts of things. Like w once that happens, I was a little unclear on what was happening in the story, but you know, up until that point, I thought it was a pretty straightforward fairy tale, just done in a stylistically very bizarre way. I, I would say I enjoyed this movie the most of any of these films, just because it's, you know, lively and funny and absurd and goofy and really colorful and, you know, just some amazing set pieces. Were you, were you not particularly fond of this one? Uh, I, I loved it because of all the things that you said. It was like a complete fever dream of like color and movement and God knows what. <laughs> it's so frantic and just baffling. As you said, like it's the camera work is the midpoint between Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors and then and then what he does in, in White Bird Marked with Black, and which is the 70s movie. So it's a really interesting. It felt like a missing link in a, in a strange way, even though those movies aren't that dramatically different. And this one really is. But I found it hard to follow because it's just so, I mean, like the editing is, is insane. It feels nonlinear, except that it is linear. <laughs> All of this dream logic, you know, like you were saying, like suddenly he has a bunch of money and you feel like, wait, did I miss something? But you're like, no, he just like killed a child and got a bunch of money. <laughs> There's all of this creepy imagery, like when when you see that the the child is like this inverted image of a child. He looks almost demonic himself. There's this beautiful folklore manic depiction of all of these things. I love like there's a scene where he goes back to that where he got that fern, which I think is called like the Bear Glade or something. It has some ominous name. And there's all of these people that are laughing and dancing around a circle of fire. And then like all of those cuckoo priests come out and they all like, attack him. <laughs> and they're all midgets or, or played by children. But he's being attacked by these miniature priests. Yeah, it's just like it's just a totally surreal image. And and I mean, there's so many scenes in this where Yanko had like he, he meant them build these actual sets like they could have been matte paintings. But uh, I mean, like there's this one scene towards the end where it's like all of these houses laid out in a in a field and it just looks like a painting come to life. It's, it's just so strange looking. I don't know how to describe it. It's like really flat, but it's clear that he built these houses because there's human beings that are coming in and out and they all all these peasants come out at the same time. And there's this very, you know, political satire moment where the Russians who are all dressed like, you know, French royalty, which is like also like a very Russian, you know, thing, their obsession with the French royalty. And the, the princess, the Russian fr princess comes out and has this like, let them eat cake moment where she asks why all the peasants aren't dancing every morning for her, which is what her understanding of the Ukrainian countryside was. And so, you know, they like crack a whip and all these peasants have to start dancing. But the set is just crazy. It's just so strange looking. I don't know. I mean, I love that stuff. I just I love how art directed all of this is. Yeah. Also particularly memorable are those two hills where he's 
clearly like stuck these roses in the ground at very regular intervals. So these two right. mountains are just covered with these roses, but really sparsely placed roses. And it's you have to see it to know how striking this image is. But they're just, you know, so many obsessive little you know, set design things, but done in a in a very different way than in Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. It feels less ethnographic in this and more just straight out of this guy's imagination, straight out of his dreams. It actually, this one, the it reminded me visually of Wonderwall. <laughs> <laughs> Which I haven't seen. It's a terrible movie, but, you know, it has some striking visuals, but there's something very hippie about this movie, even though it has this Gogol folklore traditional feeling just playing with editing and playing with camera tricks but also building this visual metaphor and creating a a general sense of unease and witchcraft and this very ukrainian style sorcery (laughs) uh i just i don't know i mean there's also this amazing scene where he's just hanging the camera off of a horse as as the wife gets kidnapped by these cossacks mongols it's sort of Makes makes a point of them being Mongols, a Mongol horde, but I don't. I'm not sure what the significance is. I see. I couldn't even tell. <laughs> <laughs> this is like that's what I mean. Is like I I got totally lost in the like what was happening besides the the sort of basics of this story. I mean, it's just this is really. I mean, this feels like a movie that was made by a cinematographer because he's just throwing absolutely everything at the wall. All at the same time, it looks like it was probably a total blast for him to have shot. I this is a movie I don't think saw the light of day. <laughs> no, I think this is another one that didn't didn't get seen until the eighties. But it's amazing, and I'm with you. I think like you should probably at least see Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors first. But uh, this is this is a totally slept upon underseen film i mean there's really not that much about it online even i i this is something i would love to see restored yeah what we saw didn't look bad um but it's yeah it could use some restoration and it just needs to be seen there there really isn't very much written about it in english anywhere and then i guess that finally brings us to uh the the dreaded (laughs) peace de resistance the the widely celebrated and perhaps most fame actually it, admit definitely most famous film of uh, Sergei Parajanov, which is the color of pomegranates. is from 1969 and it is about uh, an 18th century Armenian poet Sayat Nova Novi you know and and I don't even know what to say about this movie I mean it opens with this disclaimer that this is a movie that isn't about trying to tell you a story it's about trying to essentially make the poetry of Sayat Nova come to life you know in front of your eyes except don't take that literally. <laughs> well, I'll let, I'll let you go on before I start start in on this movie. But it, it it does tell a story. You sort of it's it's hard to watch this movie the fir- for the first time and get any kind of story out of it, but it is definitely telling a story. Oh, sure. And I'm curious to see how how you how you try and sum up what it's what it's telling. 
Yeah, I'm with you. I actually, I, I got something out of this movie this time. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I didn't even, I'll be real, I didn't even take notes for this film because of the fact that there's just no way to describe it. It, it is just a series of tableaus. You follow uh, Syed Nova through the various stages of his life as a child to a young man, to a middle-aged man, to an old man, to his death. And it is told through just the most arrestingly beautiful and yet alien-looking scenes of 18th century Armenia. <laughs> and um, it's just these like beautiful costumes. Everyone's set up in these tableaus. It's exactly what the Kiev Frescoes film that he was trying to make uh, is, except now I think he, he sort of figured out the loophole by setting it in the past, not about anything contemporary or recognizable, because it feels, again, this feels like a completely alien movie. The first time that you watch this movie, you will think, well, I'm missing all of this symbolism that clearly means something to somebody, and I don't get it. I, th this must be profound and, and beautiful to somebody who's more pretentious than me. But I do think, having watched it multiple times now, that the esoteric nature of it is, is definitely a feature and not a bug. And that quite likely what you feel you're missing is, is meant to be felt. And it's really about trying to transport you to a time and a place that you don't belong while still mining a very relatable human message. <laughs> what is that relatable human message? If you don't mind <laughs> letting us know. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I don't know anything about Syed Nova as far as a, a poet. Uh, I probably should have just looked it up at the end of this movie, but I find this movie so satisfying. I never feel like I have to start Googling. <laughs> <laughs> but um, to me, this time around... I mean, the whole movie, like, I, I find this whole thing, it's mysterious, it's evocative, it's it's beautiful, it's it's unnerving, and it's the poetry of longing. I think it's just, it's the human condition told through boundaries that are either compulsory because they are the boundaries of the society that's being lived in. So, for example, we, we see things like people butchering animals or monks having to air all their books out because of leaks in their stone homes and, and castles and churches and just the the limitations of of this 18th century lifestyle and just the way that that humans navigate through that but then also these self-imposed limitations and boundaries which are things like longing and love and desire. And so we see him both falling in love and also rejecting it, saying, no, I'm a, I'm a poet and an intellect. Like, I can't, I can't have this. Like, I need to focus on what matters and, and then regretting that choice subsequently. But also, I think just in general, the profoundness of the human condition is, is kind of the other part of this. It's just where we are in this vast cosmos, right? <laughs> Uh, again, as as told through the most gorgeous and bewildering costumes you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, I mean this this movie needs to be seen. It's it's stunning. The first time I saw it, I got absolutely nothing out of it other than it looked really cool. Like I I didn't even know like I couldn't identify the central character because he's played by different people at different ages. I didn't I didn't even necessarily know I was supposed to be following the the poet's life 
I mean, I knew, I guess I knew vaguely that it was supposed to be a biography of this guy, but I think going into this movie, knowing that there is a central character that you can follow in each of these sequences and it's the same person is, you know, that's further than I got the first time I saw it. It was just a series of, of, of striking images. I agreed 100%. I did not realize that the first time I saw it. <laughs> so that uh, anybody who hasn't seen this and is going into it for the first time, try and pick out who Syed Nova is in each of these sequences. And that will that will help you determine some kind of a story. I mean, he... He gains facial hair as he ages. Right. But when he's no longer a child, he's... Uh, when he's a young musician, a young court musician. He has a very big hat. Right. And he's also played by a woman who is also playing the woman, that the princess that he falls in love with. So that's really disorienting. Like there are a lot of things in this that he, <laughs> Parjanov does nothing to help you along in this movie. There's this idea that everybody knows Sayatnova's life well enough that they can you know, that watching this is, oh, obviously this is the scene where he's falling in love with the princess or, or whatever. But going into this blind, it's nearly impossible to in interpret what's going on. I've seen this three times now, and I thought by the third time I would fall in love with this movie. I'm, I'm still not in love with this movie. I do think it's a must-see film. You've got to see it at least once, but you won't make much out of it the first time, so you need to see it twice. But I, I'm not sure it's a movie that that <laughs> pays off your, you know, repeated attention to it. You know, in terms of going into the past to follow this these alien traditions of this alien culture, I, I think that uh, that's Fellini Satyricon did that in a much more engaging way. That's a movie we revisited a few months ago, and I, I fell in love with it. I never liked that. I had my response to that movie the first time I saw it is, you know, somewhat similar to my response to The Color Pomegranates the first time I saw it. But that movie I figured out on, on repeated viewings. This one I still, I'm still mystified by it and I'm not sure it gives you enough. At least doesn't give a Western audience without any awareness of who Syed Nova is enough to get a whole lot out of it i'm sorry to say the more that i've watched it the more that that feels like a positive to me but i fully agree with you like there isn't enough here when i watch this movie i don't leave it feeling like the same way even that i left feeling 2001 which to me is like cinema apex there's no emotional payoff in this there is times where i feel very bored <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, there, there's just something about this movie. I just feel like it's so daring in structure and it's so beautiful and it's so alien and it's just so, so wholly unique in cinema that I have a hard time not giving it more credit than I emotionally feel it deserves. You know, it, it's like if you ask me a list of my favorite movies, I'm not going to say The Color of Pomegranates. But if you ask me to watch this movie, I'm like, hell yeah, this this is a must see. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's something to see. I don't know what what more to say about it. 
you know, you have this problem with long movies and I love a long movie if it's engaging for it's, you know, three, four hours or whatever. This movie is only 78 minutes long and it feels endless. Like it, this, this movie at 78 minutes is too long. I think that Kia frescoes for 14 minutes is perfect. Like incomprehensible <laughs> images that have, give you just enough to, like to you know something to think about i think in you know take any 14 minutes of this film that's a good that's a good morsel to bite into but for feature length it's yeah it doesn't it doesn't maintain the the fascination for me over over that that length of time i just want to say for the record my problem is less about long movies and more about the fact that when you come home from a 9 to 5 job <laughs> Uh, it's very hard to stay awake for four hours. Um, but no, I mean, I'm with you though. It's, it's funny. I, I, it is, it feels very long. I, I wish that like Satyricon and Satyricon's a really interesting comparison. And, and I'm, I'm fully on board with that, uh, as they, they do feel both like completely alien cultures that are yet totally human, uh, and recognizable and understandable and, and also fully baffling at the same time. But um, I don't know. I still, to me, all of that's like a positive. It's just like everything that, that frustrates me and confuses me and bores me is like the, the, all of the, the best parts of this. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I think a lot about like, this isn't medieval, but older societies, like what did people do all the time? <laughs> and so there is like a, a degree of boredom that I feel like is actually very representative of this time uh, in my mind and like my, my sort of fantasy vision of, of the past, I suppose, because in reality, I'm sure people were keeping busy in one way or another. And it wasn't like there were times where peasants were just staring off at nothing. Like um, they probably had quite a bit to do, but uh, I don't know. There's something, I think the slow pace of it is also part of that time travel back to again, like putting you in, in, the mindset and the space and time. And I think to have to accept and live in that is kind of a really interesting, it's an interesting ask of an audience. And I don't, I don't blame anyone who rejects it, but I kind of like the challenge. Hmm. Yeah. I guess my main disappointment is that after three watches, I still don't quite get this movie and it's considered one of the, the greatest films of all time. I feel like I haven't really read and granted I probably could make a bigger effort. It's been a while since I've looked, but I haven't read any breakdowns of this movie. I found terribly compelling for what it's worth. Yeah. I started to read something about the various symbols and got about as far as the, the three pomegranates at the beginning uh, representing the three major languages of, the Caucasus mountain people, um, the the Armenians, the Azerbaijani, and the Georgians, and so the that's what the three pomegranates represent. What does that mean to me? I, I don't I don't know. I I'm not sure that <laughs> that opens up this movie to me at all. It it makes me realize that yeah, these symbols are interpretable, but. Will they mean anything to me? Probably not. <laughs> People get very lost in the details of this movie. 
And, and I understand, again, it's like, I fully get it because you want you, you, that's the thing that you, you fixate on. You're like, why does this guy have a peacock in his mouth? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, what, like, what is happening? Why are they murdering this other animal? (laughs) Like, why are these like books defying gravity? There's so many strange details, uh, like these men that go in and out of like holes that are basically as, as wide as their very thin bodies and a lot of strange movements and dances and, and things. And, and well, I figured out those are wine vats because at, at one point, Syed Nova, he does, pours, he, he dips a cup into one of those vats and, and has a cup of wine. But yeah, you have no idea what these things are until you're like, Oh yeah. So that must be thinking back to, 20 minutes before, that must be what those things are because he just pulled some wine out of there. But I think none of it matters. You know what I mean? Like, I really, truly believe that, like, this is a movie that's just about the human condition and you have to, everyone has to, like, watch this movie and think broadly and think about the feelings that you're feeling. Think about the the very loose story that you can interpret from, from what you're gaining and see what you what do you see in the negative space? Like, what do you see where there is nothing? And I think that's going to be the more compelling film than trying to sit there and break down what every single seed of the pomegranate <laughs> means, <laughs> which is satisfying in its own way. But I just think that, like, if you want to connect to this on a human level, you got to look way broader. There is some silliness in it that that gets you through it in parts like he's he's clearly being really playful in a lot of moments, like what that playfulness means, I don't know. But, you know, you've got that like mime performance that's that's really pretty silly and entertaining. And I don't know, you just got people popping out of thin air and, you know, a lot of jump cuts that that are sort of surprising and funny. And, you know, you, you don't you don't zone out watching this. Well, no, I guess you do zone out a bit, but it's not you know, it's not a painful viewing experience really because it's got it's got a variety of things in there you're always kind of taken by surprise by what the next thing is that you get shown it's wearying when there's just one after another after another after another of these things that just happen that appear you know these beautiful images but what do they mean i don't know and by the 15th one it's like why even bother anymore I have this image of of you, Bart, um, just like living life and and saying, what does this mean? Very angrily to like a toaster or something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, but I I agree with you. Like I I agree with you and yet I I disagree because I just, there's something about this movie that really compels me and yet, again, doesn't make my favorite film list, but... I feel all the same frustrations you feel, and I I embrace them. What can you tell us about the legacy of this film? I I didn't read up on it. I I know it got suppressed, but I also think there were people who saw it at the time. Is that right? Maybe you're outside of the Soviet Union, people saw it? Uh, I mean, this was um, managed to make its way internationally, uh, for sure, and this is part of what garnered a lot of sympathy from Scorsese and, and and friends when he was then you know put into a labor camp pretty quickly after this movie a lot of people were petitioning to get him out I think he was sentenced to, to five years 
well, he was sentenced to five years in the 60s. I think he got put back in when I think he was in Georgia and got sent to jail again. I forget. It was like a, it was always the same stuff that he was being sent to jail for. I'm laughing, but it's not funny whatsoever. Uh, it's pretty depressing, actually. I mean, like, I don't know to think about this movie and then realize that we how many more of these like interesting and, and thoughtful and, and truly unique pieces of cinema we could have had if it weren't for our jerk ass governments of this planet. But um, I'm not even anti-government. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. But yeah, I mean, like this was this made its rounds and it became pretty much a top film out of out of Soviet Russia. Uh, I know Jean-Luc Godard thought this was a masterpiece. Antonioni thought it was a masterpiece. You know, you can, I, to me, it's like you can see its influence on, on multiple filmmakers. You can see its influence. To me, it's like a perfect piece of performance art. Uh, I feel like every time I've seen bad performance art, it makes me appreciate how wonderful color pomegranates is. It influenced Lady Gaga. There was a Lady Gaga music video that rips this video off that um, was exciting for me to realize uh, when I saw it come out, even though I don't really care about Lady. She's fine. You know, she seems like a nice young lady. But um, it was just I think that was to me. I, I always appreciate the backdoor culture smuggle. <laughs> <laughs> Where it's like a song that has absolutely nothing to do with this, but the music video is like a bootleg color of pomegranates, and like there's someone out there that thinks like, "Whoa, Lady Gaga is really out there, man." <laughs> uh, and then there's someone else who Googled it and watched this movie and thought, "What the hell am I watching?" <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, this has been restored. This has been kept, uh, you know, and and. Um, Parajanov, I mean, he didn't really get to make another movie after this until the 80s. It, it was like that. That's where really the hammer came down on um, his ability to make films, which is, again, depressing and, and frustrating. And uh, and yeah, I mean, this has become find, find it in the sight and sound top film poll. Yeah, I mean, Criterion's got a 4K Blu-ray that's... Uh... I mean, apparently there were many, many different cuts of this film. Um, it was kind of torn apart by the Soviet censors, I know. And they insisted that all reference to Syed Nova be removed from it. And that's part of what makes it so incomprehensible. You never hear anybody's name, including the name of the person that it's about. It was restored uh, and, and recut. Right. I watched the Criterion version, and it's got... I mean, that intro was added, so to, to inform you, this is, in fact, about Syed Nova. But other than that, there's it doesn't refer to him at all. But, uh, yeah, I don't think, I don't I mean, I think the Criterion one is the most complete version that has been released. I don't know, even in a heavily edited version, this is still a stunning movie to look at. So I'm not sure subtracting six minutes of this film <laughs> really would would affect one's appreciation of it much. And that was uh, Parajanov and Ilyenko. And this was, I mean, for me, a super satisfying episode. I'm glad we finally did it. Yeah, some challenging movies uh, that were really great. Like this is, it covered a lot of ground from 
Soviet realism to Ukrainian magical realism. And it's all pretty fascinating stuff. In comparison to the Dovchenko episode that we did, which again was an episode I really enjoyed and I, I, I found a lot more in that than I expected to find. But uh, I don't like those films to me don't hold a candle to everything from Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors onward. I think they're just there's such a, a breath of fresh air as far as just being unique and, and interesting and being controversial, being subversive and uh, again, just wholly different i mean using all of this like film language that we know and recognize in a way that you've just never seen it used before and uh i just to me that's what i'm always that's what i want you know <laughs> like that's the most inspiring and the most interesting way to to watch a film well i think we also had the advantages with this episode of following two people and sort of identifying their trademarks throughout and that sort of gave us a, a sort of unified vision and and made each film that we watch kind of build on the last and you know identify oh that that's Ilyenko that's that's Parajanov whereas the the sort of random sampling of Ukrainian films we did last time I mean I think it gave me an appreciation for how Ukrainians see themselves and how the small Carpathian village is sort of central to to the Ukrainian identity at least in at that time in, in the 60s according to the, the filmmakers that we selected, that's, that's sort of central to their identity. And you could sort of pick out certain cultural traditions from, from movie to movie that uh, say, hey, what, I, I remember that from the, the Stone Cross or, or, or whatever. Whereas this movie really have, you know, personal filmmaking and, and you can follow the personal ticks of each of these guys you know, sort of see how, how they're building on their own work and sort of pushing themselves to the next level with each film. So I think this is a more satisfying episode in that it's, it's, it's a more unified vision. You sort of get a more complete picture than just taking a random sampling of, of Ukrainian films. But I also loved pretty much all of the films that we did in that last episode. So it's just, I, I like how we did this. It was, you know, two two different approaches to the same culture listen to these episodes back to back yeah and for me it's just like don't sleep on Ilyenko I, I every you know Parajanov is is the more famous of the two and and rightfully so but Ilyenko has such an interesting filmography and the two of them actually did collaborate on one last film in the 80s where uh, Parajanov wrote it and Ilyenko directed it and it is about how horrible it is to live in Soviet society. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, it's called Swan Lake The Zone. And it's actually, oh, it's from 1990. So we'll have to watch that for 11, which is our Patreon exclusive mini episode plug. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, definitely you got to watch at least two of these movies, ideally three. Yeah, I mean, personally, Ilyenko's, speaks to my sensibility a lot more than Parjanov does. I'm not going to say he's the better filmmaker, but I'm more tempted to revisit his films at this point than Parjanov's. So take that for what it's worth. There's Bart being a subversive himself, defying cinema canon. Whatever Scorsese says, I say the opposite. Go, 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 
You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.